Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. California is currently attempting something no state has ever done before. Study reparations for black Californians. And I mean, this question of what the government owes to descendants of slavery, that's a complex question. And the U.S. as a country has never made up for some of its biggest harms, like slavery or even the genocide of Native Americans. But we have provided some reparations before, and that's for Japanese Americans who were taken from cities all over the West Coast, including right here in the Bay, and were incarcerated as scapegoats during the Second World War. For those who think that um, the current reparations effort for black Americans is a pipe dream, it's impossible. I remind them actually that It was done before, and the journey is worth it. Today, we look back at the Japanese-American fight for reparations and how those still here in the Bay hope to see that legacy through for Black Californians. During World War II, around 120,000 Japanese Americans living along the West Coast were forced out of their homes and forced to live in detention centers for the duration of the war. So for most people, that was about three years. Annalise Finney is a reporter for KQED. Internment sort of began in stages. At first, law enforcement swept through Japanese-American communities on the West Coast, arresting community leaders. A few days later, a curfew was set and Japanese-American people were not allowed to leave their homes after 8 p.m. or before 6 a.m. Shortly thereafter, people were required to report to these detention centers. And Don's parents were swept up in all of that. And my parents, my father and my mother, Uh, were born in the Bay Area, and they were part of that American-born, citizens-by-birth, second generation. Don Tamaki is a Bay Area lawyer. He was born and raised in Oakland. He went to Oakland High. His dad was studying to be a pharmacist at UC Berkeley and had to abandon his classes and leave. His mother's family operated a tailor shop in West Oakland, and they received hate mail at their shop Mm -hmm. and then ultimately had to close the doors to report to the detention center. So for San Francisco Bay Area, 
That was a racetrack called Tanferan Racetrack in San Bruno, which is now a shopping center, but at the time was turned into a makeshift detention camp surrounded by barbed wire and machine gun towers. They then were at Tanferan for a while and then sent to Topaz, which is where they actually met and married. Topaz is in Utah, about 700 miles from the Bay Area. They were at Topaz for about a year and then were given permission to leave and work on the East Coast. So they weren't able to go home for three years, but they were incarcerated for about a year. Did his family ever talk about what happened to them? Not much. Um, And that's a common trend among a lot of the people that I interviewed about this. So I was born in 1951 and we grew up uh, post-concentration camp. Our parents and grandparents learned that anything connected with being Japanese in this society got them into trouble. A lot of people said that older generations who experienced incarceration really didn't talk about it much, and some say that it was just a means of survival. I think it was an effort to shield their offspring from the harsh reality that they went through and the desire basically to move on. After all, Many of these folks who were ultimately put in concentration camps when the war ended returned to the very communities that exiled them in the first place. While Don Tamaki's family and many elders didn't want to talk about internment, there were other Japanese Americans who wanted to push the issue out into the open. During the 70s, grassroots activists inspired by the civil rights movement put pressure on the government to study what happened at these concentration camps. Because at that time, a lot of people knew nothing about what people went through. This is known as the redress movement. By the end of the 70s, activists had made a lot of progress on getting the government to pay attention to this issue, and they continued to play a big role in making sure people's stories were heard. There was this real push for reparations. Some people had been pushing on congressmen and lobbying to create a commission to study internment and what had happened. In 1980, that commission was created. And in 1981, the commission began holding public hearings across the United States. Good morning and welcome to the first of a series of field hearings that the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians will be having. Anyone could come and speak about what their experience had been within the experience of Japanese-American incarceration. And for three days, those hearings were held in San Francisco. It became extremely personal. Naomi Kubota Lee, um, at the time of the hearings, was a UC Berkeley student. She was born and raised in Marin, so she's from the Bay Area. And she became the co-chair of a grassroots organization called the National Coalition for Redress and Reparations. It was an intergenerational organization, but it also had a lot of work being done by college students, just like Naomi. The main thing was we had meetings, so people felt encouraged to, to talk to other people for them to come. That was important. Her role in preparing for the hearings was essentially to help prepare the older folks who had been there. She was younger and didn't live through internment. You know, word of mouth, so people didn't feel like it was just uh, an academic study. They, they, we wanted people to be there. People who were part of the grassroots organization that she ran held mock hearings. They proofread people's testimony, gave advice. They offered transportation for elders who were, wanted to be there. We And so maybe if Denise thought we were a bunch of 
you know, uh, radicals or whatever. You know, we don't want marches. We don't want this, you know, that kind of thing. They, in turn, realized that we were really serious at what we were doing. And they respected us, too. So they were kind of the watchdogs of this, making sure that what happened was really serving the community, that it wasn't only this kind of sterile government hearing. And I know she helped a lot of people to really share their stories for the first time and then proceeded to watch as they did that. How does she describe those moments? Naomi says that sitting in the audience was an incredibly powerful experience. It wasn't like people just came, gave their testimony, and left. They came back the next day and the next day because it was like this wonderful community support. We're behind you. There was this sense of this is a moment of kind of communal sharing, that people wept with the people who were testifying, people cheered with them, and people protected them. People were given five minutes of time to speak, and she says that there was this little egg timer that would go off at the end of five minutes. And sometimes somebody would be in the middle of an incredibly emotional recounting of what of something that had happened to them. Mm. And when the timer would go off, the audience would protest and say, no. This is the first time some of these people ever spoke about in their entire lives. And we felt like we needed to make sure they got their say after all these years. She said that in this forum, the sense of solidarity was so powerful that the audience sort of became a living thing within itself. It, you know, everyone was crying. It was tears of, like, solidarity, and it was healing in that way. I guess a stereotype would be that, oh, people in general don't like to show their tears in public. But we're all... When we were in the audience, it was like a watershed moment. From July to December of 1981, the Commission Studying Japanese American Internment held 11 hearings in 10 U.S. cities. More than 750 people came forward to testify about their experiences. And one of them turned out to be Don Tamaki's father, Minoru. Don's sisters helped him get ready, and he spoke in front of the commission at Golden Gate University in San Francisco. Members of the commission, good afternoon. My name is Minoru Tamaki. I was born in San Francisco. Don Tamaki's dad, Minoru Tamaki, was 62 at the time of the hearing. Don said that he was sort of surprised when his dad was like, yeah, I want to go testify in these hearings. He said that his dad wasn't somebody who really spoke out a lot, didn't do a lot of public speaking. In those dark days, I dared to speak only in whispers. Every movement felt like a furtive act, like I had committed a crime. I was a young man, just beginning my adult life. I suddenly felt stripped of my self-respect and my sense of belonging. What I find so difficult to bear was that my country has decided that I was not to be trusted, that I was not wanted in my own country. His dad hadn't talked a lot about this period of his life to Don before, but he wanted to testify. And on August 13th, 1981, he testified. The only way that we can do this is for every attorney to receive a substantial cash settlement sufficient to stir controversy and to provoke discussion. A cash settlement is the only way that the message will never be forgotten. I ask that this commission Take this strong position so that justice will be served. Thank you. 
Coming up, what the reparations debate looked like back then and what it means for this reparations process for Black Californians. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. So ultimately, was it hard to figure out how to give reparations for Japanese Americans who were incarcerated? Yes, there was a lot of disagreement. There was disagreement within the community about what should be granted. Mm. Some people felt like asking for money was sort of a dishonorable thing to do and cheapened the suffering of their experience. Others felt like money was essential to prevent it from happening to another group down the line, that only if if the U.S. felt like this really hurt their pocketbook would they think twice before doing it again. And there were also people who felt like the money was important and necessary for the emotional trauma that was caused and the value of property lost. But beyond that, even when it got to Congress and there was a proposal on the table, there was a lot of debate around it. I'll recognize the five minutes. Mr. Chairman, I appreciate the pleas to go home. But we're here to do business. One of the groups that provided unwavering support for the movement was the Congressional Black Caucus. Ron Dellums, who is... I think pretty well known in the Bay Area. He was um, a city councilman in Berkeley. He was the mayor of Oakland. He was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives representing Northern California. He was a big supporter of this, in part because he had his own personal memories of what Japanese-American internment looked like. My home was in the middle of the block on Wood Street in West Oakland. There's a really amazing speech that he gave on the floor of the house sort of fighting against some amendments that somebody had proposed to decrease the amount of money that was going to be granted in reparations. In this speech on the House floor, Ron Dellums talks about the friendship he had with a young Japanese-American boy whose family ran a grocery store. My best friend was Rollin, a young Japanese child, same age. And he talks about what it was like for him as a little kid to see somebody taken away. The day the six-by trucks came... I would never forget the vision of fear in the eyes of Rollin, my friend. To not have anyone be able to explain really why that was happening or to give him any type of good reason why this is unfolding in the way that it was. My mother, as bright as she was, try as she may, could not explain to me why my friend was being taken away as he screamed not to go. And this six-year-old black American child screamed back, don't take my friend. No one could help me understand that. No one, Mr. Chairman. He talks about in his speech that the pain that that moment caused, 
needs a reparation of some kind. At this moment, he's advocating for a certain cash amount that had been decided upon in the bill that was being discussed. Um, but he makes clear that he thinks reparations are needed for this type of harm. This is not about how long you were in prison. It is about how much pain was inflicted upon thousands of American people who happened to be yellow in terms of skin color, Japanese in terms of ancestry. But this black American cries out as loudly as my Asian American brothers and sisters on this issue. What did Japanese Americans ultimately get in restitution for internment during World War II? So this commission that held the hearings issued a final report with recommendations for reparations, but it wasn't until years later that Congress actually passed a bill granting reparations. That was the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. And what the bill included was $20,000 checks for every surviving person who had lived through incarceration, a letter of apology to every person, and then also a federal fund to provide money for projects that would promote the public education of what had happened at the camps. Mm. I think that last part is often sort of forgotten about. The people that I spoke to really felt like the educational fund was really important, that it funded hundreds of documentary projects, of research projects mm. that have created curriculum, that have expanded the opportunities for people to learn about what that incarceration meant to the people who experienced it. Wow. I didn't know that, actually. I mean, how does Naomi talk about she was so involved in making this happen and, and seeing it through? How, how does she talk about what it was like to finally get reparations? When the bill was finally granted, she felt elated. I mean, Naomi didn't receive reparations because she wasn't incarcerated. But for her, she felt like it was something that honored her ancestors, that her grandparents who had been incarcerated and had passed away even though they weren't going to receive it either. It was just this moment of their suffering being honored and recognized. I think that's the first feeling I had is happiness for them. That, that if, maybe not happiness, but just that it reversed all those terrible uh, silence that was surrounding the camps. Some people felt like it was a huge victory. Some people felt like really the symbolism was the most important part. And some people felt like it wasn't enough. There are people today who were cut out of the reparations bill who are still fighting for their recognition and for their reparations. One of those groups are Latin Americans of Japanese descent who um, were incarcerated in the United States as part of a kind of program between various Latin American governments and the United States government. And that lawsuit continues. I want to talk about how this history shows up today, Annalise. I know that a lot of Japanese Americans and descendants of those who were incarcerated have themselves been advocating for reparations for Black Americans. What does Don Tamaki see his role as? What's the connection that he sees between his family's story and then the fight for reparations happening for Black Americans right now? He's the only non-Black member of the California task force. Don Tamaki says that what happened to his family is just sort of a permutation of the greater system that affects everybody of color in the United States, and he describes that as white supremacy. To be sure, every person of color has 
been impacted by it, but some groups certainly worse than others, and none more persistently and horrifically, I think, as African Americans. That what afflicts black Americans is the same thing that allowed for Japanese American incarceration to take place. So he sees it as sort of part of the same fight. And he also feels that his involvement in the reparations movement for Japanese Americans was very much influenced by the civil rights movement and his understanding and his family's understanding that what had happened to them was not okay was influenced by movements for black liberation. And so I think he sees it as sort of a debt owed. The scale is completely different. You know, I'm very aware that I'm the only non-black member of a nine-member task force, and I'm Japanese-American. I am mindful that I think I, I need to be respectful and deferential. That said, it's going to take all of us to change this country. It can't be done by any one group. It can't be done by black people alone. Alice, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Annalise Finney, a reporter for KQED. By the way, Annalise's story is part of a much larger series going on here at KQED on California's Reparations Task Force. We have a team of reporters and editors covering California's first-in-the-nation task force and what reparations could mean for the state. You should check out more from that series at kqed.org slash reparations. This episode of The Bay was produced and cut by producer Maria Esquinka and editor Alan Montesilio, who scored this episode and added the tape. As always, hit us up on Twitter at The Bay KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Thank you so much for listening. Peace out, y'all. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.